Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Happy New Year and welcome to our first episode of the State Bar of Texas podcast for the year 2022. Before we officially embrace all the possibilities that lay ahead in 2022, let's spend a little time looking back at 2021. A year ago, the world was still in the throes of COVID-related lockdowns and mask mandates and the debate as to whether and how courts should reopen. Today, many courts in Texas have resumed at least limited in-person operations and life is crawling, perhaps even toddling, back to pre-COVID norms. You know, eating in restaurants, wandering maskless through shopping malls, and gnawing our teeth at traffic lights while we wait for the folks at the front to finally get moving. Seriously, it takes people so long to start moving when the light turns green. Then again, those are the same folks who weren't fast enough to make the light the last time. So I guess it kind of makes sense. But you know, in the midst of all this change and transition in 2021, one could be forgiven for not realizing that our courts have been busy, very busy. The justice system has been marching forward and the Texas Bar Journal for 2022, the month of January, provides a year in review for 2021. Please do check out your TBJ for the full panoply of topics. I really hope I use the word panoply correctly. I'm just too lazy to look it up. So fingers crossed. For today's episode, we'll be focusing on what 2021 meant for appellate law in Texas. Why appellate law? Well, because so much of what happens at the appellate level affects trial lawyers, bankruptcy practitioners, transactional lawyers, and pretty much all other aspects of the legal profession. Our guests today have authored two of the pieces that graced the pages of the January 2022 TBJ. First, and in no particular order, we have Warren Harris, head of the Appellate Practice Group at Bracewell and president-elect of the American Academy of Appellate Lawyers. Warren co-authored the TBJ's review of appellate law alongside his Bracewell colleague, Stephanie Michael. Warren joins us today. Our second guest is Kirsten Castaneda, a partner and the chief diversity officer at Alexander DuBose and Jefferson a firm that specializes in appellate work. Kirsten wrote a year-in-review piece focusing specifically on the Supreme Court of Texas. So what do us ordinary mortals need to know about appellate law in 2021? Well, let's find out. Warren and Kirsten, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rocky. It's good to be here. Absolutely. So you both had to write concise pieces summarizing very broad practice areas. And I couldn't help but noticing. I was like, how do you, how do you encapsulate a whole year into... I think what for each of you might have been eight or so paragraphs. How did you decide what you would write on? So Warren, let's start with you. How did you how did you encapsulate that? Yeah, it's a matter of going through what the Supreme Court has done in the last year and really trying to focus on procedure cases that are going to be of importance to appellate lawyers and lawyers handling appeals in general. Uh, but it's really trying to focus on procedure and things of broad interest. And Kirsten, how about you? How did I? I mean, if it was me, I'd just be throwing darts at a board. But it sounds like you put more thought to it than that. It was daunting to start the process of figuring out what to include, and, and I guess more importantly, what to exclude. Sort of like uh, jury selection. It's not about <laughs> picking the actual jurors. It's about figuring out who you're going to strike. But I think a lot like Warren, I tried to find cases that were of interest to a broad spectrum of practitioners. I also tried to find cases that maybe on first glance didn't seem to be of interest to a broad group of practitioners, but had larger lessons to share. And then there was one category that I looked at where the 
the court was just particularly active in the the past term. And so those were my criteria I tried to use. I mean, it's it's funny because, you know, for those of us that do a lot of trial work, appellate work, you know, we tend to focus on the sexy cases, right, in the news. It's the stuff that seems to have seems to have broad public appeal. But when you're talking about what's going to be important to lawyers, these are seemingly mundane issues that can have broad impact on virtually every practice area. They're sexy for appellate geeks, though. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I, I haven't met an appellate issue yet that I thought, oh, wow, how boring is that? We can always find a way to make it, uh, to dress it up in our heads so that we are always fighting the dragon. And uh, it's always, always important. So note to self, never go to Appellate Law Comic Con because it is not <laughs> going to be an exciting event. I mean, so kidding aside, Kirsten, I was actually intrigued by the section in, in your piece where you write about plain language and ambiguity. Yes. And, and, and that, that's always been a fascinating topic because you wrote that the Texas Supreme Court, and I'm, I'm going to quote this, this little phrase, it, quote, continued to employ a plain language approach in interpreting various documents. That's the end of the quote. But we lawyers often, I guess the word is issue, issue plain language, though, in drafting documents. So what is plain language in your view? And if you would walk us through what you think that means for how we lawyers should be drafting agreements as we move forward. Sometimes plain language truly is plain. And you can look at the face of a document and take the interpretation either that you want to employ or that your opponent wants to employ. And you can see that in order for that interpretation to work, you'd have to add a word, you'd have to take out a word, you'd have to change a phrase. And if you're having to do any of those things, if you're having to change the language of the agreement in order to make your interpretation work, then generally speaking, from a plain language point of view, you're going to be out of luck or your opponent is. And that's a particularly strong position to be in if you're in any court in Texas or beyond, and particularly in the Texas Supreme Court, where it gets a little tricky, you know, the Sundown Energy case that's mentioned in the article, that's a trickier mm -hmm. situation because in one part of the document, drilling operations are defined one way. In a, another part of the document, they're defined in a slightly different way. So which controls and, mm -hmm. and does the more specific definition control the more specific situation? Well, apparently, if with your general definition, you've said the drilling operations, whenever used in this document, mean, mm -hmm. then you have just given yourself the, the trump card, and you're going to be using that definition throughout the document, even if somewhere else there's a more specific thing. This push and pull between mm -hmm. the language that's used in the document in one place and language used in another place or between what the parties intended when they started drafting the document and where it ended up, you know, 50 drafts later. Mm -hmm. That is what employs litigators in trial courts <laughs> and appellate courts across the state. And it sure. will continue to employ us as long as there are courts and contracts and business. So I think to your point in drafting agreements, it's very important to take a step back at intervals along the, along the way to make sure that, that you haven't strayed too far from the original intent to the extent that there have been revisions that they are not contrary to what you're intending and to make sure that there is consistency throughout the entire contract. And that can mean, as we all know, in, in some cases, 
multiple documents. That can mean five different contracts, addenda, exhibits, things like that. You have to be not afraid to go back to the people that you're negotiating with Mm -hmm. uh, and raise these issues. Because at least if you raise them, if the other side refuses to do something, then number one, you and the client can decide how important is this? Is this a deal breaker? Is it not a deal breaker? Number two, you can shape your client's expectations. When litigation occurs, the -hmm. client's not going to be surprised if it focuses on this thing that nobody could agree to in the negotiations, what it meant. And number three, you as the lawyer can do what you can to ameliorate the problem, even if the other side doesn't. I love the word ameliorate. Ameliorate. Okay, good job. Good job. We're doing some good vocabulary for 2022 here. I think, I mean, th- you know. this is, this is, this is going to be the, this is going to be the year of the word. I love it. Everything you're saying makes sense, but I go back to a more fundamental question, which is, you know, I think a lot of times in litigation, at least in my experience, it's that each party is using a word and they're not necessarily defining it because they each think they know what it means. And they say, well, obviously drilling operations means this, or obviously this word means X, Y, and Z. But when you get in front of a court, it turns out they both had different interpretations of that same word. So I don't know if the if the courts have really addressed this, but how does plain language play into a situation like that, where the plain language could go either one of two or maybe even more than two ways? Have they have they addressed that yet, or do you think that's something that the courts need to kind of keep in mind moving forward? Yeah, I think they have addressed it in that you're going to look at the plain language and you're going to look at the surrounding the surrounding provisions. You're going to look at the context in which the agreement was made. And then you have canons of construction that can come in after that. You know, one of which is you construe against the drafter. A lot of contracts have language saying both parties drafted, so you mm-hmm. can't construe against a certain right. person. But there, there are ways that you can try and figure that out. If of course, though, if a contract truly is ambiguous, if it is a situation, like you're saying, the rare case where you look at the language, you look at the context, you've employed the canons of construction, and there are two, at least two possible reasonable meanings, mm-hmm. then you go to a jury and the jury mm-hmm. gets to decide. I mean, the problem here is, though, that even though we have these mechanisms to to decide these debates and to decide these disputes about what contract language means, I have a... a a friend who's a a real estate finance lawyer who negotiates quite a few agreements. And his philosophy is if there is ambiguity in agreement and it provides an opportunity for litigation down the road, then I've already, you know, that's a loss for my client. Right. You know, if there's something that creates the potential for litigation, even if it could get resolved by summary judgment, Mm -hmm. um, my client then has spent money uh, litigating that matter. So, so that is a problem where everybody thinks they understand what the language means and they actually mean two different things. I think that is rarer than mm-hmm. the situation where each party wants language to mean something different sure. than it does. They've gone back and forth in their negotiations, mm-hmm. you know, uh, positioning themselves to as best they can to have the contract written so that it can only be interpreted their way. And when it ends up in court later, They may feign surprise (laughs) that there's a dispute. But I think if you went back to the actual negotiations, you'd see it was probably a point from the beginning. Warren, you may have had a different experience with that. I don't know. No, I I think that is right. And I I very much echo your point of as long as there are lawyers out drafting agreements like this, there will be litigation and appeals. (laughs) And 
And, and I think the, the other point is that that's very much right. If it goes to litigation, that's not a win for the drafter because that causes so many business issues in addition to the expense. I mean, it can blow deals up and cause all sorts of other hardships and hard feelings. You know, trying to draft draft it cleanly and keep it keep it out of litigation is the key. But as you say, when you pass a document back back and forth 50 times, and things get melded in and people keep crafting these sentences that started off nice and simple and turns into 150 words with about seven commas <laughs> in it. Uh, what the heck does that mean? So, <laughs> right. Well, it, before we get too deep into this topic, Warren, I wanted to make sure that we also covered some of the stuff you discussed in your article because it, it, was, it was interesting to me. It looks like you covered really two broad topics. There was waiver and then appellate jurisdiction. And it was interesting to me to see how you and Kirsten both picked different topics that you thought were kind of salient. Again, another big word, salient for the year, <laughs> for the year 2021. Start so, making your bingo cards now. I, I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to sound smarter than I am. This is, this is hard. So <clears throat> let's, let's talk maybe first about waiver. The interpretation or, or the gist that I got, Warren, from what you wrote was that really the courts may be shifting to a more... And maybe, maybe they've been shifting for a while, but it looks like they're kind of embracing a more substance over form approach when it comes to the issue of waiver. Looking at, did you really waive or did you just forget the procedures that would have really made for a more formal lack of waiver? And so I, I, I wanted to kind of maybe ask you that question, maybe talk about the cases so we can understand the context and then tell us what you think about whether we're really looking at a, at a substance versus form approach to waiver. I think there's no doubt the court wants to decide cases on the merits. That That is the Texas Supreme Court. And that's not a new shift. We continue to see it in cases, and the court continues to remind us all of that. But that's been happening, I, I think, since the early 90s, since, you know, 93 or so is when we really started seeing that happen in Texas Supreme Court jurisprudence. You know, like in the, the Lyon Copolymer case where the court of appeals held that the party waived the ability to uh, raise its factual sufficiency point because of insufficient briefing. And that's something that comes up all the time. I mean, almost every appeal is going to have a factual sufficiency point. And it is tough in how to brief it in that you go through and you brief the legal sufficiency, which is usually where the real meat is in trying to get relief for your client. And then how do you brief the factual sufficiency? Do you, do you just come back and say for the same reasons it's also factually insufficient how much detail do you have to go into? I mean, that's something appellate lawyers struggle with in every case. And here the Court of Appeals said it was insufficient. And it noted that there were really three, what the Court of Appeals called bare assertions of factually insufficient evidence that they held were insufficient to brief it. Hmm. And the court said, that's not right. You know, again, reminding everyone that briefs have to be construed liberally citing the rules of appellate procedure. I mean, that's nothing new. That's in the rules. And there's a, a sentence from the Supreme Court's opinion that I think really sums this up, and it's what we've been talking about, is that courts should hesitate to resolve cases on procedural defects and instead endeavor to resolve cases on the merits. And that's what the Supreme that's Court wants to do. The court wants to reach the merits of the case and not have people winning and losing cases on technicalities and it also puts lawyers in a bad situation because that, that waiver word can, can mm -hmm. be very dangerous whenever you have an appellate lawyer who has 
been hired to handle an appeal and brief a case and the court of appeals hands an opinion back that says, well, your lawyer didn't know what he or she was doing because this issue's waived. That's tough for the professionals. And so sure. I think it's you know better for the clients, better for the courts, better for the justice system, better for the lawyers to reach the merits of the cases. And I think that's where the Supreme Court is really going here and saying that, you know, the the issue is adequately briefed. And as the court noted, you know, even though it intertwined its analysis with the legal sufficiency complaint, the court noted it was intertwined, but that's okay. I don't think anybody could really doubt that the party was trying to raise a factual sufficiency claim. And when you look at the brief as a whole, which is what the Supreme Court said you need to do, the issue's preserved. So, uh, you know, that that, that looks easy coming at it here, but at least one court of appeals, uh, you mm-hmm. know, struggled and came to a different view on it. Well, and and you use the word intertwined. So now you got your official 2022 big word down. So, you know, good job. I mean, look, this is this is a team effort. It takes a village to create a dictionary. So a no, word but, village. It, it is. I'm telling you, this is this is awesome. So, but you know, it's interesting when we're talking about this this issue of sort of substance over form or form over substance. I wonder, do you think as appellate lawyers that creates kind of a new consideration when it comes to briefing strategy? You know, because y- yes, you can you can go with multiple issues, but everything I've learned or everything I've heard from appellate lawyers is you typically want to keep it to no more than three to five issues. So does that mean that now when you're looking at these procedural issues of waiver, maybe you give second thought to whether you're going to raise that on appeal or do you still raise it? Because you never know what how the court might rule on that particular topic. Does that change your your tactics and strategy going forward? It does, and not only from the number of issues, but also again knowing your court. I mean, mm-hmm. is there any chance you're going to win the issue? And I think that's one of the things you've got to take <laughs> into account. Even though if you feel you're right, if you really believe the issue is waived, but no, you've got to know your court. In that particular court, are you going to win that issue? And if you're not you then need to decide why you're raising it. I mean, maybe there's a tactical reason if you really believe the issue is right and it's not not a frivolous complaint that, that you want to raise it. But I know I've many times in drafting briefs sitting around with, you know, a, appellate teams debating, should we raise this issue, should we not? I'm sure Kirsten's had the same sort of d- debates as you're roundtabling uh, issues for a brief. And inevitably someone will say, we're never going to win that point. The, the, the court will not sustain a waiver point on this issue. So... It, it is interesting because you have to have a reason. I love Warren's phrase, you know, is there a reason for it? It doesn't have to be we're going to win, but there does need to be a reason if you're raising it. One of the things that I always think of when trying to decide what issues to raise or what issues to cut, again, focusing more on what you're going to cut than what you're going to you're going to argue, is the Affordable Care Act case that the fir- the very first one that came up um, that reached the U.S. Supreme Court where they decided it on the taxation issue that everybody thought was mm-hmm. a loser that they were never going to decide it on. And I don't know who it was who who advocated to keep that issue in over the entirety of the litigation, but that person was having a single malt scotch that night because it was the issue that most people at the round table, I'm sure, were saying, we need to cut this. This is a <laughs> loser. It's just taken up word count. So you do have to be careful, I think, when you are looking at the issues to cut and thinking to yourself, this is a loser. Why is it? Is there anything about it that gives you a chance? Does it bolster your theme? Is it sort of the the next argument that makes the court feel better about 
ruling for you on the first argument. You know, those are the kinds of things where you may not ever win on that point, but it helps you in some way. I do think also with waiver, there are a couple of things for trial lawyers in particular to keep in mind. First of all, there are strategic reasons to waive things. There are strategic reasons to waive things in the trial court. There are strategic reasons to waive things in the Court of Appeals and the Texas Supreme Court and Fifth Circuit. We've talked, Warren talked eloquently about these things. And so the important thing there is that it be a conscious decision and that you communicate to your client about it. Because if you shape your client's expectations, again, like when we were talking about ambiguity, they're not going to be surprised if a court comes down and says, you don't, you didn't preserve this issue. They're not going to be surprised if you tell them, we can't put that in our appellate brief because we didn't preserve it in the trial court. And the second thing about waiver is that the danger that these opinions that Warren talked about present to litigators, in my opinion, is that they create a comfort level that is not necessarily warranted. I think these opinions are a wonderful safety net that you can use if you find yourself in a position where the other side is arguing waiver, or if you review what's been done to the point where you arrived in the case and you think there may have been waiver. These are a safety net for you. They're not something that I would rely on looking forward. Hmm. And I don't think that Warren was saying that either, but that's to me the danger of practitioners reading these cases. The good news is I do think that there is an argument to be made, especially in the vein of Warren's know your audience point. If you find yourself in a court that is a little bit more trigger happy about finding waiver, I think there's an argument to be made that part of due process and part of the justice part of the justice Mm -hmm. system is the consistent administration of justice. If courts across Texas are arbitrarily finding waiver in this case, but not in that case. It's confusion. It's confusion. It's also injustice and it's also not really due process for people. So just remember the argument that there are these cases that have found that there is not waiver in certain situations. There are these cases that tell us that the the approach that Texas courts should take is one of deciding cases on the merits and not waiver and urge your court to apply that philosophy consistently so that even if you find yourself in a court that's more likely to find waiver, you have an argument that they should not do that because it would be arbitrary. It would be an inconsistent application of these uh, authorities. And it would be giving, you know, a litigant over here more than a litigant's going to get in a different jurisdiction. So before we move on, this is is an interesting discussion. We do need to have a quick word from our sponsors. So let's take a quick break. We're going to give Kirsten and Warren a chance to take a breather. We're going to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll be back with more appellate law in Texas in 2021. So be right back at you in just a couple of moments. The Texas Lawyers Assistance Program provides confidential help for Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who have problems with substance use and mental health issues. TLAP offers 24-7 confidential support and can connect you to peers and providers for assistance. TLAP can also connect you to the Sheeran Crowley Lawyer Wellness Trust, which provides financial help to Texas lawyers, law students, and judges who need treatment for substance use, depression, and other mental health issues but can't afford to pay for services. Call or text TLAP anytime at 1-800-343-8527. 
And we're back. We're sitting here with, with Warren and Kirsten, and we're talking about the year in review of appellate law in the year 2021. So if you're, well, you wouldn't be just joining us because you were probably joining us earlier, but in case you forgot because you were so enthralled with everything we've been talking about, we were talking about this, this issue of waiver and sort of substance over form. And this has become a very interesting discussion. One thing I wanted to ask both of you guys, though, is, you know, we're, we're talking now about substance over form when it comes to the issue of waiver. Looking more generally, do you think the Texas appellate courts and maybe the Supreme Court in particular, do you think they're kind of taking a more, are, are they focusing more on justiciability as opposed to strict procedure as we move forward? You know, and I think Warren, you'd said that that was a trend that you saw starting back in the mid nineties or maybe early nineties. Do you think that's, that's kind of applying throughout appellate law or is it strictly limited to certain issues that the court really doesn't want to have interfere with the way cases are decided? I think it's applying more broadly. I mean, the, the court wants to reach the merits of issues and to, you know, get, get it right in doing so. And that's where, you know, we come in and we need to help and give the court the tools that it needs to do that. But I think the, the court really does want to get, get to the, you know, re- reach the core of the issue. So I guess, I guess maybe the, the question then becomes, you know, how do you present it? From an appellate perspective, if you've got a procedural issue that did have a merit-based impact, if it impacted the merits in some way, and I guess perhaps, are you suggesting or do you maybe agree that those would be the strongest procedural issues to bring up is when you can actually tie that back to the merits and say, because of this procedural lapse on the other side's part, my client's case was impacted and here's why. Is that where you think the procedural arguments are going to start evolving as we move forward? Well, I, I don't think the court wants to get into technical waiver points. We, we've kind of mm-hmm. talked about that. Where where the procedure has developed in a case and it's been an intentional strategy, I, I think that's that that's a different animal. Where the parties mm-hmm. have made conscious decisions to go down a certain path and to follow the procedure in one way as opposed to another, and, and then you have to decide where that leaves you in a case. I think that's very different than these technical, you know, briefing inadequacies and. And, and the such. So, you know, some, mm. sometimes the procedure does become a big part of the case. It becomes really sure. substantive in, in what you're doing. And I think that's okay. And, and the court will deal with that as opposed to the, it's the technicalities I think the court really wants to get away from. Interesting. Kirsten, do you agree? I do agree with one caveat that sometimes to me, it appears that the technicalities and the whether they're waiver issues or just procedural issues that are unclear in Texas law, where we're all finding our way, those almost seem to me to be areas where the courts of appeals get to be discretionary review courts. Mm. If they're interested in it, if one of the judges on your panel is willing to tackle it or tackle the merits that lie beyond it, I guess would probably be a more accurate way to say that then I think you're likely to get past the procedural technical issue. If, on the other hand, the court is not interested in reaching the merits, if they are not, if it's complicated, it's it's a hot button issue, there's it's going to the Supreme Court anyway, mm-hmm. any of any of these sorts of justifications, I think you know, the, the courts of appeals don't get to, to decide what cases to take, but in that respect, they, they do a little. And so I think you have to be very conscious of the way that you present those issues. 
in terms of your briefing and your advocacy. Don't assume you're going to get to oral argument on it and explain why. Do what you need to do to advocate to get at least one judge on the panel to want to go beyond and to exercise that discretion. Well, I'll tell you why why I'm kind of interested in this this substance versus form or procedure versus merits type of type of issue because Warren in your in your piece you you talked about the Dominguez and the data foundry cases and you talked about those when it comes to the issue of appellate jurisdiction my interpretation of I've not read the cases but my interpretation of of the way you presented it was that really it looks like the Supreme Court took a kind of substance over form approach in Dominguez but then might might have arguably done the opposite in data foundry. And I don't know if I read that wrong, but I wanted to kind of give you a chance to kind of comment on those two cases and what they say about appellate jurisdiction and whether that was form over substance, substance over form, or something entirely different. Yeah. And in the Dominguez case, I mean, the the court, I think, looked at it from a practical standpoint, as well as what the, the term any party meant. And because the issue there was that a party had tried to intervene and the intervention got stricken. Mm-hmm. And whenever a final judgment was signed, it filed a timely motion for new trial. And then whenever a party files a motion for new trial or certain other post-verdict motions, it then has 90 days to file a notice of appeal. And so on day 87, it filed a notice of appeal. And the question was, because the party's intervention had been stricken, was this party attempting to intervene, quote, any party, close quote, within the meaning of the rule mm. that could file a motion for a new trial and extend its deadline? Oh, and, the court, okay. and the court had to look at whether, you know, even though they had been stricken as an intervenor, were they, quote, any party, close quote? And the court of appeal said, no, they're not. They're not a party. And the Supreme Court said, well, not, not so fast. They are a party to the judgment because that's the way they can appeal. They can't appeal the interlocutory order, striking the intervention. They have to wait for a final judgment, and therefore they are a party to that judgment, even though they are not a party in the case because the intervention got stricken. And the court said, because that is the way they have to appeal and they're a party to the judgment, of course they are, quote, any party, close quote, within the meaning of the rule that can file a motion for new trial and therefore can appeal within uh, the 90-day the window as opposed to the 30-day window. Otherwise, arguably, it becomes it becomes almost a lack of an appeal because you say, well, once the trial court strikes your motion to intervene, then you're kind of out of luck because you, you, you can't file a motion for a new trial. So that, that might be the strategy that the Texas Supreme Court took there. Well, and you could, you could file a motion for a new trial, but it won't have the effect of extending your appellate timetable, oh, which you. is not a result that makes really any sense, sure. which I think is what the court was saying. And you could, you know, define the party, the word party very technically to argue as the Court of Appeals did. Well, you're not a party, therefore you can't avail yourself of that rule. It just makes no sense to do that, Sure, uh, I, I think is what the Supreme Court said is the bottom line. So what about data foundry? Yeah, data foundry, I think, is dealing with a different issue. And there it's dealing with more of a, you know, due process, the ability to be heard. It was a 91A motion that was granted on one specific ground, and it was on a standing ground. Sure. And the Court of Appeals reversed on the standing ground and held the plaintiff did have standing and then affirmed it, affirmed the dismissal in part on other grounds that the trial court hadn't reached. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that because the party should have had the opportunity to develop the issue in the trial court. 
and the trial court should have the opportunity to determine the issue. I mean, it was there had never been a ruling on it before. Mm. And the Supreme Court said, no, you need to go back. Plus, on that record, there were some factual issues that needed to be developed on one of the theories, which also made it more complicated. You're not dealing with pure legal issues that the court could have, you know, said, well, we can read the papers as well as the trial court could have, and we don't need to do that. But it was really a matter of fundamental fairness of allowing the the parties to, you know, develop that issue fully and allow the trial court to have a ruling and then take it up because the parties didn't really brief it fully in the court of appeals. expecting that one, right. Yeah, it it wasn't like there's an alternative ground and everybody briefed it and the issues joined and you have, you know, the, the record and arguments developed. And so, again, that goes back to fundamental fairness that we need to start and let the trial court make a ruling and then take it up from there and let everybody have a chance to be heard and fully brief it. Now, Kirsten, I want to go back to to your article. I know you 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 discussed several topics, but in the time that we have left, I wanted to focus on your discussions on attorney immunity and judicial proceedings privileges. I thought that was a really I thought that was a really interesting and kind of cool topic to take up for a year in review. So if you would describe those two concepts and then give us your interpretation of in 2022 and beyond, how do we attorneys navigate those? Because Again, I, I wasn't expecting that in a year in review, but it was it was interesting and cool. So so talk to us about that. Right. So, you know, I hadn't focused really on this issue before either. And I think particularly in this era where lawyers are tweeting and posting um, on LinkedIn about cases that are ongoing, you know, what can you say? What can't you say? Sure. And what's protected? What's, you know, going to leave you open to a defamation <laughs> claim, mm-hmm. whether it's valid or not? And these these cases really give lawyers guidance. And I think that was on the court's mind when they were taking these cases, deciding to grant these petitions and taking these cases is let's give lawyers some guidance on, you know, where the, where the lines are, because obviously this is happening more and more often. So the attorney immunity privilege applies in all contexts when an attorney has a duty to zealously and loyally represent their client. Mm-hmm. But it has to be the type of conduct that's protected by the privilege. And that conduct is limited. So you're going to be looking at conduct that constitutes providing legal services involving the unique professional skill of an attorney. So it can't even be providing, you know, legal services that you're, you know, copying a document on the copy machine. And in addition to that, the conduct needs to be conduct Mm -hmm. that the person is engaging in to fulfill the attorney's duties to represent the client in an adversarial context. And so the client and the non-client that you're talking about, you know, the opponent in the litigation or the third-party witness or whoever you're talking about, they need to be adversarial. So Mm. there are a lot of hoops to jump through for attorney immunity to apply. But the one thing, you know, even as the Texas Supreme Court imposed the hoops, the hoop that they removed was you don't have to be doing this in a litig. You don't have to be providing services in a litigation context. So transactional attorneys can take advantage of this attorney immunity as well. And so basically, if you're making a statement while you're discharging your duty to your client in service of the client's interests in the litigation or the deal or whatever it is, right. you've got a good chance of coming within this privilege. And then the court also addressed judicial proceedings privilege. So that's sure. the one that we're all familiar with. Like if you file a pleading mm-hmm. in a lawsuit, 
the statements in the pleading are not supposed to subject you right. to a, a you know claim for defamation. You you need to satisfy Rule 13. You need to satisfy um, mm-hmm. the statute. But sure. Uh, so that's going to protect statements made in, in a judicial proceeding. But the judicial proceeding doesn't extend to the courthouse steps necessarily, where you're holding a <laughs> press conference <laughs> about stuff that's been said in the courtroom or in pleadings. So don't just think that, oh, well, I was talking about, I was tweeting about the lawsuit. I was doing a podcast about the lawsuit. It's a judicial proceeding. So I'm, I'm protected. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't just think that. And I think basically the, in, in Haynes and Boone and Landry's, the two cases that are in the article, what you can see is the court trying to strike a balance to afford attorneys protection for things that really do need to be done in the course of representing a client, in the course of litigating a judicial proceeding, but they're not going to extend the penumbra of that penumbra, another good word. That's a great word. Yeah. I'll write that one down. Definitely to the farther and farther away you step from Mm. the lawsuit or the deal or whatever the case may be, just because you're a lawyer and just because you're engaged in serving your client doesn't mean that you're going to be immunized uh, from a defamation claim. So you still have to be careful about what you're saying, what you're publishing, whether that's orally on a podcast or in mm-hmm. writing on Twitter. So the bad news is if you're an attorney or if you're anybody, you still get to post humble brags to LinkedIn, which I wish they would outlaw those. Those are so annoying. Well, guys, unfortunately we are we are out of time. I wish we could continue. This was a lot of fun, but I got to tell you, Kirsten Warren, y'all are Y'all are really smart, and it took all of my energy to keep up with you, and I had to come up with with words that I don't even know if I used them correctly. So I'm going to call it quits now and go lay down. But I want to thank both of you for taking the time to join us today and for for helping us look back at 2021 and look forward to 2022 and beyond. So thank you both. Thank you for having us. It was wonderful to have this sense of community. Thanks, Rocky. Good to see you, Kirsten. Absolutely. And of course, I want to thank you for tuning in. I encourage you to stay safe and be well, and be sure to check out the January 2022 edition of the Texas Bar Journal to get the full story on all of the highlights of 2021 across a myriad, there's another big word, well, not big, but you know, cool word, myriad of practice areas. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, life's a journey, folks. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.